Hello, this is Whitey Herzog. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And hello to all Royals fans here on Clubhouse Conversation the place where we talk to current and former Kansas City Royals. And today, a Baseball Hall of Famer joins us on Clubhouse Conversation on this February morning, 2015. It's Whitey Herzog in the MLB Hall of Fame, thanks to a lifetime in the game of baseball. Coming up as a player at the Major League level for eight-plus years, spent time in Kansas City when he was in the minor leagues with the Blues back in the day, and then with the Kansas City A's. And then, of course, later on, Whitey managed the Royals and managed them to three straight postseasons, 1976 to 1978. Three heartbreaking losses, of course, to the New York Yankees, which I'm sure we'll talk about here on Clubhouse Conversation. But Whitey went on from his days in Kansas City to skipper the Cardinals, 1980 and on, won a world championship there in 1982, faced the Royals in 1985 with that memorable World Series. We'll talk about that and so much more as Whitey Herzog joins us on Clubhouse Conversation. First of all, an honor to talk with you, Whitey. Thanks for joining us. And what are you doing these days? What keeps you busy in 2015? Well, I'm, everybody says, what are you doing? And uh, I always tell them the answer, nothing. <laughs> but I'm getting pretty good at it, you know. But anyway, no, I'm getting up there in age pretty good, David. And uh, haven't lost a game now since 1990. <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't won any either. But the big thing is I stay pretty active, you know. I've got nine grandchildren and uh, five great-grandchildren. I live all over the country and uh, try to stay up with them. All of them playing their sports. Now I got three grandchildren married. My wedding anniversary will be this week. Marilyn and I've been married 62 years, and she always says 31 because I've been gone half the time. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a strong woman right there to stay with a baseball man that many years, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, belated congratulations, obviously, on the Hall of Fame. You know, can you even put into words how much that means to you? Does, has it even set in yet to you that you're in? Well, basically, you know, you know, when you get elected to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, you know, that's that's the highest award you can get if you've been in professional baseball. And uh, I went through a period of time I missed by uh, uh, two votes in uh, 2002. I missed by one vote in 2008. And then when Dick Williams went in, when we could uh, quit splitting up the vote, there was seven years there where they needed 75% of the living Hall of Famers, and 12 of them didn't. There was only 80, 82, I think, uh, living Hall of Famers at the time. 12 of them didn't vote, and about 15 of them who seen how didn't, <laughs> didn't know who they were voting for anyway. So we had a period of about seven or eight years where nobody from the uh, old-timers or managers got in. But with the voting now, and I've been on the uh, committee the last couple of times, it's a lot easier now and a lot better. And uh, there's a lot of deserving people. And uh, 
not only the players that are going in by the riders, but, you know, the three managers went in last year and and three more years we'll vote again and there'll be some other guys like Pinella and other managers that might be eligible at that time. And then, then some old-time players, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, like Quisenberry and uh, guys from the Royals that I you know, was fortunate enough to get to manage that might be uh, on the threshold, either one way or the other. And uh, it's an interesting thing. And I enjoy being on that committee talking about all those guys. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the Royals, how much fun was it for you watching the 2014 World Series and their postseason run this year? Well, first of all, I was very happy. Uh, you know, the fact that they finished one game behind Detroit, they had a good race. And uh, then they had the knockout game with Oakland, and uh, they had Lester Pitchin, who they almost killed uh, three or four prospects to, uh, to Boston for. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, had a 7-3 lead. Uh, they were winning, and they get two men on, and he takes Lester out and brings in a guy that gives up three hits, and the next thing you know, the wild card game is tied, 6-6, six, six, and they prevail in 11 innings. And it just seemed like from that time on, they took off. They started hitting home runs, getting a lot of clutch hits, and uh, their bullpen what might have been one of the best uh, in the history of baseball. I wish I'd have had that bullpen when I managed there. <laughs> Holy moly. I mean, you better beat them in six innings or you weren't going to beat them very often. Yeah. But I was so happy for Dave Glass, the ownership group, the front office. I was happy to see George Brett and that smile on his face, and it was just a great thing for Kansas City Royals baseball in the city of Kansas City. Absolutely. Well, we'll come back to your Royals days here in a bit, but I want to go back to when you were a kid then. So you grew up in New Athens, Illinois, obviously, and I know you've always been a big baseball fan. So I'm imagining you as a kid. Were you the classic kid that would play baseball all day and then listen to your yeah, old radio at night? Really. I graduated from high school in 1949. Uh, the town, they, the Germans over there call it New Athens. They don't say Athens. And uh, I had a brother a year older than me that uh, had a town selected me and had noise operation in the seventh grade. So in those days, that was a yearly thing. So they kept him back out of school a year. And he and I graduated together and so forth. And uh, I think we only had about uh, 49 boys in high school. And in those days, uh, you know, we were, we'd get up in the morning and from the time that we were in the sixth, seventh grade and play baseball all day and and probably play, I don't know how many things, but I'd pitch all day, six, seven hours, and then my mom would call me in time to eat supper or something like that, and we'd go home. But that was every day. We played uptown against downtown or chose upsides by gripping the bat and spinning it. And uh, I mean, it was an everyday thing. We, didn't, we weren't a big enough uh, high school to have a football team, so we played uh, fall baseball. And we played basketball all winter and baseball again in the spring. So we got to play a lot of baseball, just like all the kids in the United States were doing at that time. And then the Yankees find you, and they sign you right after high school graduation. So how did the Yankees find you, and what do you remember about the day that you signed with them? Well, you know, basically uh, when I got out of high school, the first cl uh, club to come to see me, I graduated on Friday night, and that Saturday, uh, Joe Kernan, the uh, farm director for the or the scouting director for the Cubs, came, and uh, they wanted to they wanted to sign me, and uh, 
later on that afternoon, Lou McGuire from the Yankees came, and uh, they wanted to sign me, and uh, I didn't really accept any offer because I was the St. Louis Browns wanted me to come over to Sportsman's Park on Monday uh, to talk to them and bring my mother. And uh, they had seen me pitch a game in high school my senior year against uh, Lincoln High School, and I pitched a no-hitter and struck out all 21 guys. And uh, <laughs> when I got over to St. Louis, you know, they wanted to sign me as a pitcher, which uh, I was pretty wild. And I'd have some, I had an off day that day. I was throwing strikes and everything. But I had some days where... I'd walk the ballpark, you know, and uh, I didn't think that I was going to be able to cut it in professional baseball. So I went back home, and I thought about it, and uh, Bill McGuire, the Yankee scouts, uh, told me that uh, Mickey uh, uh, Jordan Maggio was getting old and they needed a center fielder, and uh, I signed with the Yankees uh, a Class D contract to go to McAllister, Oklahoma, the funny thing about that, I was the same age as Mickey Mantle, who was out in Commerce, Oklahoma, and uh, Bill Verdon, when it was down at West Palm Beach, and we all signed that same year. I went to McAllister, of course, and uh, 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 Bill Verdon went to Independence Kansas in the KOM League, but uh, I didn't know that Mantle was going to end up being a, being a center fielder, and again, one of the greatest players in the history of the game, so... I might have made a mistake because I probably was a better basketball player than I was a baseball player, and I had seven scholarships uh, uh, to go to college and play basketball, but I wanted to play baseball. I signed that contract for a $1,500 bonus of 150 a month, and uh, I went to McAllister. Mickey signed for $1,000 <laughs> at 150 a month, and... Uh, I went out to Independence, Kansas, as did Burden. And, uh, of course, the next when I was at McAllister that uh, first, next second year, uh, Mickey was at Joplin. That's when he was tearing it up, and then he went to the big leagues the following year. Got sent back to AAA for a short time and then played the rest of his career in New York. Yeah, well, and speaking of McAllister, then that's, from how I understand it, a broadcaster named Bill Spife. That's how you got the Whitey nickname, right? You know, my first name is Darrell, and uh, uh, I was uh, brought into the world not by a doctor, but what that time was called a midwife, and uh, I, I was born in my home in New Athens, and uh, I think my mother misspelled Darrell, and I didn't think it was very appropriate when you were a ball player to announce her, say, here comes Darrell Herzog up to the plate, and Bill Spice was a broadcaster at McAllister in the Sooner State League, and he gave me the nickname Whitey. I was a, a real towhead. You know, the more sun I got on my head, the whiter my hair got, and so that kind of stuck with me. And then uh, later on, when I was playing AAA at Denver in 55, Johnny Pesky uh, gave me the name of the White Rat because I looked like Bob Kazaba, his, uh, the left-handed pitcher with the Yankees, and... Uh, his nickname was the White Rat. So that kind of stuck with me the rest of my career. And uh, now since my hair has turned, uh, looks like dishwater or something like that, it's still not really what I'd call gray. And most of my friends and most of my ex-players just call me the Rat. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, also in the Yankee system, you got to know uh, Casey Stingle pretty well from spring training, you know, several times. Talk about Casey and what kind of an influence he had on you. Well... Stengel, uh, 
I was invited to the Yankee rookie camp uh, coming out of service in 1955, and uh, I had played ball in Mexico that winter. I was at Leonard Wood the previous two years playing in the Army during the Korean War. I got my first opportunity to manage at Fort Leonard Wood because I'd gone in for the Kansas City Blues. And uh, I came to the Yankee rookie camp, and uh, that's when I got to know Casey. And uh, he made an impact on all of us, I think, because he was such a great teacher of fundamentals. He was probably the best teacher that I've ever seen. He would tell you things uh, that no one ever brought up, and we played for a lot of good managers. I think at that time the three best organizations I'm talking about now when I signed in 49 were the Cardinals, the Dodgers, and the Yankees. And uh, when I met Casey after playing three-plus three years in the Yankee organization at that rookie school, and I did pretty well, he kind of took a liking to me. And... Uh, uh, he he told Ralph Hawk, who was going to manage Denver AAA, that I was supposed to be center fielder. So I really yeah, I went from AAA, uh, a, a very little AAA experience, to the regular center fielder in Denver because Casey told Ralph I was to be center fielder. But Casey and I became longtime friends, and uh, it seemed like uh, uh, I never did realize why he took so much interest in to me. And except later on, I read a book about him. And uh, he played on McGraw's Giants. And uh, uh, third baseman on those Giants teams were Buck Herzog. And I don't darn well now the reason he spent so much time with me was because he thought I was Buck Herzog's grandson. <laughs> I never did tell him any different. He'd say, how's Grandpa? I'd say, great, he's doing great. You know, so uh, that was one of the funny things. But uh, he came down to Anaheim when I got fired in Texas and was coaching third base for the Angels in uh, uh, 1974, I think it was. And uh, the next thing you know, uh, he, he came down sometimes from Mendel and visited me in the afternoon at the Angels Ballpark. And uh, the years that we spent with the Mets together, he was out of my complex at Payson Field when I was director of player development every morning. And uh, we really became really close friends. But if anybody really had an impact about how I taught baseball and base running and so forth and fundamentals, it was Casey Stengel. Hmm. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Denver, 1955. You hit 21 home runs that year. You drove in 98 runs. And then, uh, you know, so you came up with the Yankees. But then before 56, they sent you to the Senators. So, you know, what were your emotions like when you found out about, you know, going over to Washington? Well, actually, I really needed another year Triple A ball. I was having, uh, I had was leading the league in home runs and RBIs in July, and then they found out I had trouble with the slow breaking ball, and I would have really benefited more if the Yankees would have sent me back to Triple A. Uh, at that time, we played in Bear Stadium in Denver, and uh, I think I hit 13 home runs at home and nine on the road, so it wasn't too big a differential. But the thing was. Uh, I went to the big leagues, and I really wasn't ready. I was the player to be named later in the Mickey McDermott deal. And I'll never forget, I went to, it was Easter Sunday, April Fool's Day, uh, 1956, and I got back to the hotel, the Serena Hotel, where we were staying. And the PR guy, Bob Fischel, said, Mr. Stengel wants to see you. And I was traded from uh, the Yankees as a player to be named later. 
uh, to the Washington Senators, and uh, I, I, uh, I got a rude awakening there. Not, not that I thought the Washington Senators were not a major league team, but our motto, which you've heard many times, first in war, first in peace, and last in the American League. And nothing was a truer statement ever said than that. And uh, I got off to a decent start. I had a 15-game hitting streak my rookie year, and then uh, they started throwing me a lot of off-speed stuff, and uh, I had a lot of trouble. And I ended up hitting 245, I think, my rookie year, and uh, struggled again the next year and uh, went down to the minor leagues for a while down in Miami, uh, played AAA for the Philly Farm Club down there. But the big, but the big thing was uh, that I finally uh, became a decent hitter. I learned uh, how to hit a little bit later on. And uh, when I played for the Kansas City A's in 1959, I got a wonderful break. Uh, Harry Kraft was the manager, and Johnny Singh had just retired as a pitcher. And uh, he was the pitching coach, and. Uh, he came to me one day and said he could throw to me every day after practice, and he'd throw different speeds, curveballs to me, and I finally learned to, how to sit on that pitch and hit it pretty good. And from that time on, I became a, a better ball player, a much better hitter, and I was able to stay in the big leagues for eight and a half years or nine years, something like that. Yeah, well, and then 58-60, to 60, you mentioned the KCAs, and, and one guy you played here with early on was, uh, was Roger Maris. What was it like playing with him? Well, basically, Roger came over uh, to us, and uh, I think it was 1958. Uh, we made a big trade with Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland had two young outfielders by the name of Carlo Vito and Maris, and uh, I think Kansas City had their choice. And uh, uh, we were kind of a farm club at that time with for the Yankees in a in an eight-team league. And uh, if if you were building a ball club in Kansas City at that time, and you had your choice, with the wind blowing the left field every night in Old Municipal Stadium and a 330-foot fence and a 356-foot fence in right field, you'd have to take Colavito just because of the ballpark. But they took Maris, so everybody knew that uh, – Maris was going to go to New York, and I think Frank Lane at that time was the general manager at Cleveland when they made the deal, and he made uh, Park Carroll, who was the general manager for Arnold Johnson in Kansas City at that time, make sure that they wouldn't trade Maris to the Yankees for, was it, a year and a half. So as soon as that time was up, Maris, of course, went to the Yankees, and you know what happened from there. Yeah, well, and you also played uh, with Dick Williams on that team, and then also, so I, I have people tell me all the time that Municipal Stadium had the best infield, the best surface in baseball. Was it the same way back then? Well, I had played there in AAA for the old Kansas City Blues, and uh, at that time it was a single-deck stadium, and uh, of course there was no professional football when I played there, and then of course later on, uh, I would say the, with George Toma as a ground crew that's been really hard, that he was by far and above the best groundkeeper in uh, baseball, and he was known for that. And when you went to Kansas City, not only was the field beautiful, edge perfect, the grass was always greenest, no brown spots, and uh, George did a lot of that with paint. If he had a brown spot, he'd spray the grass green and so <laughs> forth. But it was a beautiful, beautiful ballpark, a beautiful playing field. 
Well, you got traded uh, from KC over to Baltimore, 61 and 62, where you spent some time with uh, an- another couple of former Royals, uh, Ron Hansen and Jerry Adair. So what are your favorite memories of your Baltimore days? Well, I remember I got hurt. Uh, let's see, I got hurt in 1959. Uh, I caught a ball in Yankee Stadium that Yogi hit, and I landed about three, four rows back in the seats and uh, carried me off the field. And I eventually had a hematoma in my right thigh, and I tried to play with it in 60, and I was able to do it. But every time I swung and missed and twisted on that leg, it hurt. I think they finally operated on me on... uh, on September 1st of 1960, when the human hematoma solidified and took that uh, big calcium deposit out of my thigh, I was very surprised that I got traded at that time because I hadn't paid, played much in 1960. But Lee McPhail, who was the farm director for the Yankees when I, I played in the Yankee organization, uh, and Russ Snyder was also followed me at, as an outfielder. He was from Nebraska. Uh, we were traded for five ball players uh, to, to Baltimore, <laughs> and uh, throw in on the on that deal turned out to be the best ball player of all of us. Uh, two for five. Uh, Jim Archer had a pretty good year as a left-hand pitcher, but Wayne Causey was kind of the last guy named in that deal, and he became a heck of a ball player for the Kansas City A's. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and speaking of a couple of great ball players, you played with in Detroit then in '63. Your last year as a player was Al Kaline, Denny McLean. You know, how'd you like your Detroit times? Well, you know that was the worst thing ever happened to me. I'd hit two decent years at Baltimore. I hit two ninety one as a platoon guy in sixty one, and then in sixty two I had two sixty eight or something like that, and kind of platoon with Earl Robinson in right field. I had, I think I had four pinch hit home runs at all tighter one ball games in extra innings. And uh, uh, when I went to Detroit, uh, the four positions I could play, being a left-hand, was the three outfield positions at first base. And they had Norm Cash at first that just hit, led the league in hitting, hit about 370. And Colavito was in left, Billy Bruton was in center, and K-Line was in right. And I knew that I wasn't going to play unless one of those guys had a bone hanging out of him or something. So <laughs> it was kind of something that was a bad situation for me. And uh, then I went spring training with uh, Detroit, and I had a virus settle in my nervous system, and uh, I really kind of lost my reflexes. I couldn't uh, play very well. And I struggled all year, and I finally told Detroit. I found out when I got home I was a basketball referee, and, uh, and the MIA and MCAU in high school, and uh, I couldn't react when to blow the whistle. I'd see the play, and my reflexes were just gone. So I retired from baseball as an active player and uh, uh, was lucky enough that uh, I got the scout for Hank Peters and the Kansas City A's right before the free agent draft. And uh, later on, I coached for Finley and uh, at Kansas City, and uh, finally I left Finley and went to the Mets as a third base coach in 1966. And I think the New York Mets had uh, more to do with me having an opportunity to become a major league manager than anything because they were very, very good to me. 
Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, at 64 and 65 with the A's, and then 66 to 72, uh, you eventually became the farm director, too, there with the Mets. But one guy I know that you got to know pretty well was Yogi Berra. Did you ever witness any classic Yogi moments or stories? Oh, yeah. Yogi and I have been great friends. He's come to my dinner in St. Louis, and I have a youth foundation for um, Bill Ballparks and Legion Ballparks and uh, trying to improve ballparks for the kids in this area in Southern Illinois and Missouri. And uh, Yogi and I, uh, he coached first base in uh, 66 for the Mets when I was third base coach. Uh, We probably went out to eat 90% of the time. We had a lot of day games at that time, and Yogi and I would go out and have dinner every night. We became really, really tight. And, uh, I mean, you know, Yogi uh, was just a great ball player. I, I looked like he he might have been the best hitter I've ever seen from the seventh inning on. It's like he didn't wake up till the game was on the line in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. Huh. And invariably, when he'd come up on those teams and he hit behind Maris and Mantle in 61 and 62, he'd hit a line shot somewhere. I mean, he, he hit the ball hard. But uh, what a great ball player. And he didn't mean to be funny, but, boy, he could come up with some some uh, four line or one liners that uh, go down in history as some of the best of all time. Absolutely. So from the Mets, the Rangers hire you in '73, and I read that most people felt you weren't given a fair shot there. You know, the young players there that kind of didn't give you a real fair shake, and then Billy Martin takes over. The inappropriate "fire my mom" quote comes out there. You know, your times in Texas. What do you remember about that? Well, uh, I kind of got a break, and I and I kind of got a bad break. But the big break was. When I was hired by the Texas Rangers, and, uh, because Ted Williams was retired, and I think they'd lost 100 games about three or four years in a row, and they told me that they were going to be uh, better. And uh, I had turned down some big league managerial jobs prior to the time, and I knew that I was never going to get an opportunity to manage the Mets because they were always going to get an ex-Dodger or an ex-Yankee there in New York. So... Finally, I just kind of gave in, and it wasn't uh, the greatest thing to step into. I mean, uh, my record was probably no better than uh, Ted Williams, but uh, Joe Burke was the general manager at that time of the Texas Ranger, and Bob Short was the owner, and uh, very nice people. Uh, Joe was a wonderful family man, uh, really a wonderful person. And uh, on September 5th of that year, uh, he left to go to Kansas City as the general manager. And Bob Short and Joe Burke called me up to the office on a Saturday night. And Bob Short said that I was the best manager he'd ever had, but he wanted to offer me the general manager's job or the manager's job. And I said, well, I came here to put a ball club on the field for you and, and get better, and I'd like to stay managing. And... Uh, so Joe left and went to Kansas City, and Dan Danny O'Brien became the general manager at the Texas. And then on Sunday morning, I was in the dugout, and Bob Short, the owner, was there, and Billy Morton got fired in Texas, I mean in Detroit. And uh, he was managing uh, over Detroit and got fired, and Bob Short said, I heard him say it under his breath, he said, I'd fire my grandmother <laughs> to hire Billy Morton. And I happened to be the grandmother. And uh, <laughs> after telling me I was the best manager on Saturday, I got fired on Tuesday. So I got <laughs> dumb in a hurry. 
Man, man. Well, then you go over to the Angels in 74. You, you know, manage four games there. And then the Royals come up. So 1975, obviously you mentioned Joe Burke and you replaced Jack McKeon. So how did you get the Royals job and what do you remember about the whole interview process for that? Well, you know, uh, Jack Jack came there and it was an expansion team and he was doing a heck of a job and uh, all of a sudden, I don't know if the fans got disgruntled with him or what was going on, but Joe started searching for a manager. And uh, in May of that year, I'm talking about 75, he inter- interviewed Billy Hunter, uh, Tom Lasarda, and myself uh, with the understanding that he wanted to interview us three. And uh, he thought he might have to make a change if things didn't get better. And uh, so anyway, I... Uh, I had a good interview. He had come to Oakland at the hotel where we were staying, and we had a wonderful talk. And the fact that I had managed for him the year before in Texas and so forth, I never heard much. And then about the middle of June, uh, the phone rang, and uh, he offered me the managerial job to come to Kansas City. So uh, I uh, came into Kansas City. I I think I took over the ball club on June 15th or 16th. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we were about 15 games out of first, and uh, uh, I stepped into a wonderful situation. As bad as the situation was in Texas when I went there, the situation in Kansas City was just laying there beautiful. George Brett was 21 years old, came up, uh, tearing up the league. Uh, Mayberry was coming off a 39-home run year and I think in that first year he had 39 home runs in 76. Uh, you had uh, Frank White and Al Collins on the bench, and uh, eventually I replaced Frank White, uh, Cookie Ross, put Frank on second. I put Al Collins in right field uh, to replace Vader Pinson. I had uh, Freddie Patek, one great shortstop, uh, turf shortstop, uh, I could really play. Brett on third, and uh, that was the first year of the DH, and Hal McRae was my designated hitter. Pocket um, and Wolford, I put two in the left, and Amos Otis played right. So we had a wonderful team, and unfortunately, of course, uh, Busby came up with, after throwing two new hitters and being a great pitcher, a great young pitcher, probably would have been a Hall of Famer as a as a right-handed pitcher, because he'd already thrown two no-hitters. He came down with the rotor cuff, got operated on, uh, never recovered again uh, 100%. So I lost him, but uh, uh, we had split off and we were card. Uh, uh, we brought Leonard up from the minor leagues, and uh, first thing you know, we got uh, Larry Gura and a deal for uh, Healy from the Yankees, so we had the two left-hand pitchers that could pitch very well against the Yankees and uh, kind of took off. And, uh, we got within, I think, three games of Oakland in 76 uh, and, uh, uh, no, 75 when I took over. We were 15 games out. We got within three games, and then we went to Oakland and lost a 15-inning game there. We ended up winning 92 ball games. They won 97. We finished five games behind them in 75. And then, of course, we were able to put a streak together, 76, 77, 78. We won the division title. Collins, I think, uh, became the finished second in MVP voting in 
77, Brett became, what, as you know, the greatest ball player in Kansas City's history. Uh, we just had a wonderful team and uh, ended up uh, losing to the Yankees three times in the playoffs, the five-game series. is all you played at that time. And uh, they had Gura, who was probably the number one pitcher at that time in the league, and uh, they had uh, signed Gossage to go along with Sparky Lyle, two guys that uh, had been not only the Cy Young, but also the Cy Young winners, but Rolaids winners in their bullpen. And uh, in a five-game series, we had to face Gura a couple times, and uh, uh, not Gura, uh, the left-hander for the Yankees, and the, and the big thing was we if we lost two, three, or four games, we didn't have much of a chance to win. So we got beat nine times uh, in the, I mean, nine and uh, two times in the ninth inning of the fifth game in '76 on uh, Chambliss's home run, and then of course in '77, which I had always said was the best team I ever managed. We won 102 games. We had them down two to one, and uh, we had some internal problems on a ball club and got beat again in the ninth inning of the fifth game. So we played them tough, but we lost all three series to the Yankees. Well, let's start off with the 76 one, the whole Chambliss home run. You know, that particular ALCS, how heartbreaking was that, and what do you remember most about the 76 one? Well, Chambliss was a good hitter, and it seemed like during my managerial career he got a lot of more big hits than any other player against us, but the ironic thing about that, I could tell a story which I haven't really talked about. In the first game of the playoff at home, Amos Otis was leading off, and uh, he tried to beat out an infield hit. And he jumped uh, on his last step trying to get to first base and uh, had a slight fracture or some kind of injury to his ankle, and he was not able to play. So I put Al Collins, who was 6'4", in center field, and I put McRae in right field. And uh, McRae was 5'9", and Collins was 6'4". And Chandler's home run went off, when Al jumped, went off the tip of his glove. So I'm sure if if, uh, Collins would have been in his normal position, he'd have caught that ball. So when they say baseball is a game of inches, that's, that's a pretty good telling tale right there. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you mentioned the the 1977 team as well. Now, 102 and 60, best team in baseball. I love looking at some of these numbers. So you guys had a stretch where you won 16 in a row. You won 20 of 21. You were 68 and 24 from June until August. Now, that year as well, 1977, the ALCS, like you said, you guys are ahead 2-1, to one, and you're even up three runs in the ninth at Game 5 before losing. You know, your memories of that ALCS that year. We got three runs in the first inning in the fifth game. And the bases were loaded and two outs. And Darrell Porter hit a ball with the bases loaded two outs in the first inning. We already got three runs. And Mickey Rivers made an outstanding play. It seemed like he climbed halfway up that center field wall and brought that ball down, which would would have been a base-clearing triple, maybe even an inside-the-park home run, depending on which way the ball would have bounced off the wall. But we didn't get any more runs. So we got the three runs in the first inning, and uh, we went into the ninth inning with uh, a 3-2 lead, I think it was. And uh, I brought in Leonard, uh, my best pitcher. Not not the pitch relief like Yosti did with uh, that hard thrower in the playoffs in the knockout game. I brought him in to start the inning, and uh, 
Uh, he was probably the number two pitcher in the league, the best pitcher on my staff, <clears throat> to get me three outs. And uh, two blue pits in an air, and we end up getting beat five to three, I think. Yeah, that was rough. And then 1978, you guys won the ALS. The Yankees again, you know, this one's in four, but uh, that was the series where uh, George Brett hit, you know, the three straight home runs off Catfish Hunter, right? Well, George Brett could hit the Yankee pitching. I want to tell you something. He used to wear out Catfish with uh, uh, the other guy that I had with the Angels. Uh, uh, he, he could hit him, and uh, he just wore him out. And, boy, he loved playing in New York at Yankee Stadium. And, I mean, George put on a show, and uh, uh, we got beat, I think, in four games. Chambliss hit a home run off of Doug Bird in the fourth game to uh, win it. Uh, uh, so we didn't take him to the fifth game. But we played them tough, but in a five-game series, I mean, that uh, uh, they had a great left-hand hitters, and uh, we just, we just uh, always beat them during the season on a season series because we could neutralize their power in Kansas City. But... They had a big advantage over us in Yankee Stadium. But we had two pitchers that could really pitch well there, and it's Paul Spreadarf and Larry Gura, so we could hold our own with them. We, we'd play them pretty tough. You definitely did. So you finished off 79 in KC. The team just barely misses the playoffs. You finished in second that year. That was your last year as Royal Skipper. So were you kind of surprised that was it, and what do you remember about walking away from Kansas City? Well, you know, in fairness, uh, I didn't get along with Mr. Kaufman, and uh, a lot of it was my fault, and some of it was his fault. I mean, we never uh, really were very warm, and uh, when I looked back at it, you know, he was the owner, and uh, we set the all-time attendance record, which I think they'll break this next year. I think it was 2,256,000 people at that time. Uh, whether they broke it last year, I don't know. I don't think they did. No, that nope. Still the attendance record. Uh, we finished three games out. We struggled. We had a umpire strike early in the season, and my uh, left-hand pitchers didn't get the inside calls against the uh, 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 against the hitters, and uh, they struggled a little bit. And at one time, uh, we were ten and a half games out of first. Uh, Got within three, I think, at the end, and uh, were eliminated the last week, and I uh, got fired on Tuesday morning. It didn't surprise me because I kind of figured with my relationship with Mr. K that the uh, first time I didn't win and I'd uh, be gone, and I was. It turned out for the best. I was able to come to St. Louis and have ten wonderful years here with Mr. Bush and the Cardinals. Yeah, a few questions about St. Louis real quick here. So three pennants there, World Series, 1982. How special was that year? Well, you know, the big thing is you, you always hear about Bud Grant couldn't win the big one because he was owned four in Super Bowls, or Mark Levy couldn't win the big one because he lost three straight Super Bowls, or even Mira uh, down, down in uh, New Orleans, he said he couldn't win the big one, but he had to play San Francisco every year the first game of the, the, the playoffs in football. It was kind of like getting a monkey off my back after losing the three playoffs in Kansas City to uh, come back after being down 3-2 to two and uh, coming back and winning the two games against Milwaukee to win a World Championship. But you can look back, you know, at the 85 and 87 and uh, 
Uh, we were down up three to two on the Royals, and of course we uh, we lost in seven in '85, and we didn't score any runs. The Royals pitcher shut us down. '87, uh, we kind of stole that one. I think uh, nobody expected us to win, and we did get to the World Series. And then we had to play in Minneapolis in the Homer Dome. I mean Humphrey Dome, and uh, we could have played there till Easter. Never won a game, and they won two World Championships. And uh, it was the NBA World Series. Uh, we won three in St. Louis. They won four in Minneapolis, and then later on they played Atlanta. Same thing happened. Atlanta wins three in Atlanta and loses all four there. But it was a tough, tough place to play, and they had a great home field advantage. Uh, that's the year that. Uh, uh, we lost Clark and Pendleton. We didn't have them on our lineup, which uh, was 65% of our home runs and RBIs. So we played them tough, but we ended up losing both World Series in the seventh game. Well, the 85 series, obviously the tarp the tarp situation hurt, but also I'm sure you wish you probably had instant replay in 85, right? <laughs> Available? Well, you know, I did a, a fundraiser uh, for St. Louis University two weeks ago, and Dankinger was there. Uh, he was the umpire that missed the call at first base that would have closed it out in six games. And, uh, and somebody asked me a question there, and he was there. And uh, he said, what do you think of instant replay? And I said, well, it was 30 years too late, but I don't want to grind an axe. Uh, the Royal starting pitching uh, held us, I think, to 11 runs. For We could have won it in six. We lost it in seventh. The seventh game of that World Series was probably the worst day I've ever spent in my baseball life. You know, I got kicked out. Joaquin got kicked out. We were down 11 nothing after uh, three or four innings, and I'm up in my office, uh, and here comes Joaquin a half inning later. I was short of pitching, and uh, Tudor had started, and uh, he hadn't lost a game since July. Had had won two games in the World Series, and the Royals hit him pretty hard that night, and then he banged his uh, hand against the wall and hit a fan and cut his hand. And it was just a terrible, terrible day. And, of course, uh, uh, that's the way it ended. But the Royals were in the World Series, and uh, uh, we were picked to finish last that year. And uh, we lost Suter. I hadn't replaced him, and we'd had a heck of a year. And... Uh, and somebody from the Bury said to me after that World Series, I hope we do better next year. <laughs> so I don't know. We went to the seventh game of the World Series. I'd take that every year. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much for your time. Last two questions for you before we let you go. I mean, when you think back to your Royals days here in 2015, you know, what do you think of most? What are your warmest memories of your Kansas City times? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I lived in Kansas City. I lived in Independence. My kids went to and graduated from Raytown High School. All three of them went to college in the area. My oldest son uh, went to uh, Missouri. My daughter went to KU. Uh, my youngest son, Jim, uh, went to Central Missouri down at Warrensburg. They all got their education, all got their master's degree. It was a happy time. The people in Kansas City were wonderful. I mean, the fans were wonderful. Uh, at the time, we were lucky the Chiefs were on their way down. We were on our way up. At that time, uh, I think we became the number one ticket in town, and uh, the fans responded. It was just a wonderful time, and uh, I enjoyed uh, the players. I mean, uh, a lot of them uh, remain close friends with me. I'm always happy to see George. Of course, he and I probably 
stay in contact the most. John Wathen, uh split before he passed away. I mean, all those guys, Dennis Leonard, and, you know, it just it was a great group, a bunch of guys and a great group to manage, and I was very fortunate I stepped into that situation after my first experience in Texas. So that's the thing that really changed uh, my managerial career and prolonged my career and gave me the opportunity to come to St. Louis. And in summary, I guess last thing would be, what would you like to say to all the Royals fans listening right now? Well, I just think that they're going to have a great year. I know that they're going to have uh, seats back and so forth, but uh, with the young pitchers they got and the good arms they got in the organization, I was hoping that they'd acquire a, a hitter this year that, that could give them some long ball in the middle of the lineup. But they're going to be in the race just because every day they put a pitcher out there with a wonderful chance of winning. And baseball is a game that doesn't have a clock. you got to get 27 outs. And if you're not ahead of the Royals after 18 outs, your chances of winning are not very good because that's how great their bullpen is. Yeah, well, we look forward to 2015 and beyond. And, and thank you so much, like you know, for all your, your your service in Kansas City, both when you came up as a player and then managing the Royals, obviously, and 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 for what you did to the game of baseball and gave to the game of baseball. And you know, thanks so much for all the memories and your time. And uh, take care and God bless. All right, and my best to all the Royal fans. And of course, I uh, used to know David Glass pretty well when he was down at Walmart, and I used to play golf with him and. Uh, played golf with him in a couple of celebrity tournaments. A wonderful friend. I'm real happy for him and the Royals organization and looking forward to coming there in May. I think they're going to have a special night for me and I'm looking forward to coming back. The Cardinals are playing.